When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. school in a part of the diocese um, earlier this year and I happened to be wearing my veil. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And when I went into this particular class where I knew the teacher, I learned very quickly that these five-year-olds had never seen a nun. Because as it happens, there are no nuns in their parish and in the nearby parish, the nuns who are there don't actually wear veils. And this teacher friend of mine, uh, you know, she brought it to my notice and I was very struck by it. So in one sense, the, the nuns that I knew, say, in the 50s and 60s, and indeed maybe that I still know, uh, are a dead breed to a significant part of our population. as many now prefer to be called, are indeed declining in numbers in Ireland because far fewer women are now entering religious life. But there are 13,000 nuns in Ireland and for them life has changed profoundly in the last 20 years or so. Since Vatican II, women religious have changed more than their habits. Their lifestyles, work and understanding of their mission has been radically transformed. But this hasn't happened without much soul-searching. In this programme, six women religious talk about their lives, their work, the issues affecting religious orders today and how they see the future. Well, I'm now 71 years of age and I'm, I suppose, about 52 years in the community. I entered, I didn't really want to enter, but something inside of me kept annoying me until I did. So eventually I gave in with the idea of getting in and getting it finished with and getting out again. But I never got out again. The, the, the difference between now and then would, wouldn't be recognisable, really, because um, I, it wasn't too difficult for me to, to go to Posty. I went to a house, Henrietta Street, and was there for three months, and I worked in the laundry with the sister, the girls who were there, and, but the, living with the community, to me, was kind of daft even then. Although I'd been in boarding school, and the discipline of silence in that wasn't any great difference, but the, what we had to do, it seemed so restricted even then. I found it extremely difficult. I didn't really like it, 
But I decided after months that I would go on and see if the individual was better or worse, and I did just that. My real fight was that six, first six months in the Vichit. And I think I just lived from one day to another desperate. But I think I was also trying to pray. Trying to pray, I don't know how, but I think I was trying to pray or some form, or else someone was praying for me. I'm not sure which could well be that. Um, but I did not really want to stay, but yet I couldn't go. Nobody was keeping me. No, nobody said don't go. But I could not go. I entered the, uh, the order in 1966 and I suppose there were various things that attracted me at that time. Um, mainly, I suppose, the, uh, the mission of this particular congregation and the, the work that they did and which we basically still do is working among people, um, working with people in their own homes in, in very ordinary ways and meeting people in very ordinary ways. That attracted me, and I was also attracted at that time, in 1966, by um, the habit and by the seeing the office in choir and um, just the sort of mystique that surrounded nuns um, for me at that time at, and at that age as a teenager. When I entered, um, our life in the convent was very structured. Um, it was almost like we led, that we led two kinds of lives because our work brought us very much in close contact with people in very ordinary ways. We worked with people in their own homes. So when you were outside the convent, we, we were very ordinary um, in one sense. And then when we came back inside, we led an, an almost monastic life, um, very structured, like a, a structured timetable. Um, we were all dressed exactly the same. We were all dressed in the habit. Um, there was very little sort of uh, difference between us. I mean, we were all different individuals and had our own characteristics and our own personalities, but um, there was a certain sameness because we all followed the same rules and um, our lives were very um, ordered. As I look back on it now, and it's all of 22 years, uh, th th there was a hunger or an urge for something more than I actually had as a 19-year-old. I'm absolutely certain, in fact, that what keeps me here is a conviction that I am actually in the right place. I'm in the right place with all of the confusion and uncertainty that faces religious life today. But I'm in there with, with a very kind of strong desire to do something about it, to, to look for alternative ways of being a woman who is committed in the church and in Irish society as I happen to be working in today. I entered the Daughters of Charity two years ago, September two years ago, and um, I was the only person that entered the community at that time. I knew that I was going to enter, and I didn't want to be a so-called nun. I didn't want to be a nun. I was going out as a fella. I loved a social life. I was very happy the way I was, but I suppose I could describe it as it was more a stage I came to when I knew I had to I had to decide what I was going to do with my life. There was no vision, no thoughts, nothing happened in the middle of the night. I just knew that the time had come to stop running, that I had to go. I knew I had to go and either see one of the sisters or kind of get this whole thing out of my mind. So I went and I saw one of the sisters and told her that I felt that I was, you know, ready to enter their community. And from there, it all happened. <laughs> The fellow I was going out with, um, I told him that I would be going away in September. And he, didn't, he never really took much notice of it. 
But when I told him, he, he just couldn't believe it. He, he, he thought that I would go away and do missionary work. He said he had that idea in his head, but when I told him I was going to be his sister, he just, he found it very hard, found it very difficult. But anyway, <laughs> he went his way and I went my way. My family, there were mixed feelings. My mother was quite upset. My mother was quite upset. My father reacted differently. I suppose he, he was more calm and more... Both of them were understanding of my decision, but I think my mother had the old idea that she was going to lose a daughter, that, you know, that I wouldn't... She wouldn't have my grandchildren and so on. And just, that's understandable, really. The 60s and the 70s were decades of upheaval that were in stark contrast with the decades that went before that. And since most of us had founders that dreamed up the uh, apostolic response of our particular group in the 19th century or well before that, then this change in the sociological and the uh, psychological perspective uh, for all of us means that we really have to go back to that point and rethink it again. But we found ourselves then in the 1970s with not only uh, the outcome of Vatican II, which had called on the church to be placed in the midst of the world rather than apart from it and uh, looking at it as looking on it as bad and something that had to be renounced, but rather uh, the call to be uh, right there in ministry to a world and as part of it. That, in effect, was pulling the carpet from under underneath both church structures and religious life structures because it was calling on us to change the basic pivotal symbols, really. That is, to, to, to think of religious life not so much as uh, people behind walls who followed a regular routine, who for, for whom the common life was all important, but as people who had to now look at the world and say, what is the challenge to us now that if our founders were alive, they would respond to? Maybe what we're doing is just not needed anymore, or maybe the way we're doing it isn't the way that's needed for today's world. I think it's a very definite um difficult but positive struggle going on within all of our religious orders at the moment, probably particularly in the orders that are involved in education. Um, there is the struggle on the one hand uh, because of the numbers of sisters. That's less important and less significant than I think the struggle to keep the vision of our founders right. And that's very difficult. The only worry I would have would be if that struggle weren't there. I think the fact that people are, are, are trying to find a way forward is, is in itself indicative. Um, I do think in terms of education though that, that we are at a crossroads at the moment, um, particularly us in the religious orders, and we're talking therefore mainly about women religious because we are the, the more significant numbers in education, more schools and so on, of over 300 uh, of the second level schools in the country are owned by religious women. Um, I think that religious orders, we could very well find ourselves on the side of the wealthy as opposed to uh, the unwaged and those who perhaps um, cannot get their children into third level because they cannot afford perhaps to let their child repeat leaving cert 
or because they cannot afford to send their child to a six-year cycle school, which are in the main uh, the better off uh, schools in better off areas. Um, and we religious could find ourselves in the wrong camp, if you want to use the word camp. Um, I think many of the religious orders in that dangerous position are themselves very conscious of it, and many of them are struggling to see what can be done about it. Yes, I've seen changes over the 22 years, and I've seen a lot of shifts towards um, getting away from this separateness and being apart and being different to a movement where we, we want to work with other people in, a, in more of a collaborative fashion. My job is director of Centre Care. And Centre Care is a diocesan social service centre where we try to offer a face-to-face -face service to all who come in the door. The aim is to be able to be there as a sign and a presence of people who care, of people who have time for those who are on the margins and those who are at the very fringes of society. We do try to humanise the service, and I really believe in that element of the service. But along with that is a very strong conviction about the need to look at why people who come to centre care are so marginalised and why they are pushed to the sides in our society. So that we, out of the experience, the face-to-face -face experience, the, the, the reality of their poverty and their brokenness, out of that, we look at causes. We work at formulating our kind of words to, to, the, to the powers that be, be they church or state, so that they can address the issues that we are actually facing on the ground. So from that point of view, we would be fairly strong lobbyists. And, and I would feel that that's very consistent with being a daughter of charity. There's an advocacy element. Now, the third level that, that is very close to my heart is the level where we actually empower the people themselves to say their word. So that our work at the centre is very much on those three levels. And no one of them takes priority over the other. We try to, you know, to, to synchronise or to work them in tandem. I think the commitment to justice comes from ex experience. Um, when I first became aware of justice issues and the responsibility of religious to become involved in, in, in justice issues, um, it was a notional thing for me, I think, and I was listening to people talking about it and I was reading about it and saying, yes, I must do something about it, but being very fearful at the same time and therefore not sort of getting involved or not opening my mouth, not saying anything. But then when I actually did get involved in a situation, like when I happened to know a particular situation that made me feel very angry and said, this is wrong, you know, somebody shouldn't have to put up with this or whatever, um, and I'd come home and I'd sort of feel saying, you know, this is terrible and this, this is all wrong. I mean, then th that's what moves you and motivates you to go out and sort of maybe write a letter or speak up about it or to join with others to kind of say, what can we do about this and, and what can be done about that? You might notice that there is quite a difference in the kinds of works that religious in general are going into now as opposed to what we had been involved in in the 50s and 60s and indeed into the 70s and 80s. And that is coming from um, a recognition more and by more and more uh, amongst us that we have moved very far from 
the original um, ministry to the poor, the deprived. And that has been for a very natural reason. We have simply moved along with the people that we have educated or that we have nursed. And and uh, and so in 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 building up large hospitals or schools, we have we have um, we have found ourselves educating the middle classes or nursing the middle classes. Now we need to to move and be amongst the people and to get into the areas that are more deprived because there are other ways of uh, ministering to those who have a sufficient amount to get by on their own. It, it's not going to be easy, but going pari passu with that would be a change in lifestyle because you cannot minister to uh, marginalised regions and um, people who, who will never come near a very big house. It, there's too much of a dichotomy of lifestyle. So sisters find more and more that they need to live in smaller houses inserted much more in the parish structure so that they are not going out to their work uh, but are, are, are really there so that they can be closer to, to people. We are the body of Christ Birthing, feeding, touching, weeping We are the body of Christ It's difficult to talk in, uh, generally when one's talking about the vows because I think at the end of the day one is talking about a personal relationship with God and the whole area of the vowed life only makes sense in the context of faith. I mean, to, to outsiders it must be sheer nonsense. Um, because there's a great deal more freedom and responsibility in terms of the apostolate, obviously uh, the context in which I work, any sister works, can put different demands on vows of poverty, vows of uh, celibacy particularly. And if you like, uh, there are more opportunities to meet up with people in the context of celibacy, to meet up with men and women uh, within and without the congregation. Um, I would say as a religious who entered at 18, I'd never been in love before I entered. I was in my 30s before I could say that you know, I hit a situation where, as I experienced it, I certainly was uh, beginning to fall in love. So that was, if you like, a whole new opportunity for me to deepen my awareness of what celibacy was about. It certainly was a crisis for me personally, and coming to terms with it and uh, trying to, to learn the coping strategies, as it were, uh, perhaps in ways no different from what uh, my married relations would experience as they, deep, you know, have to uh, deepen the living out of their commitment. But certainly um, a growth point, I've no doubt. Uh, and uh, as somebody said to me, I remember at the time, one of our own uh, religious, a good friend of mine, uh, when I was kind of weeping and gnashing my teeth and what had I gotten myself into kind of thing, you know, uh, with this uh, involvement. And her comment was, so Eileen, join the human race. Well, we make the vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. The vow of poverty, I think, is very much related to the, uh, the commitment to, to justice, um, the commitment to... Um, it's, it comes from an un, um, 
an awareness of the extreme poverty of many people in the world. And while I don't see that as something that, that, that's good, and I'm not choosing poverty because I think it's a good thing, but it's to be in solidarity with those people and also to work to, um, to alleviate that and to change the reasons why people are poor. Well, obedience uh, to me is about sharing responsibilities. Um, any decisions that we make, we, uh, we make them together. It's not about, like, maybe the way I understood it as a younger person or the way that we understood it in religious life years ago about getting permission to buy something or get permission to go somewhere or get permission to go to bed early or get up late or something like that. It's not about minor details like that, but it's a much more serious thing, I think. It's about that uh, searching for the appropriate way and in a way that will be at the service of people, that won't be exercising power over people. And celibacy, um, again, I think, well, personally speaking, is something that has changed for me over the years and something that I have grown in, I think. And um, it's, it's about um, a freedom and um, an availability for people and for work. Um, it... Um, it, I do, it doesn't, it's not about being set apart, again, it's about being totally immersed and, and um, being sort of assisted to many more people than I would be, I think, um, if I had a family of my own. The biggest thing that um, I thought about would have been the commitment, you know, because it is, it is a lifelong commitment and I knew that, that it, it was quite serious really. The idea of not having children, of not being a mother, was, was a very, very big sacrifice. I mean, the way I look at it is, you can only live each day. You make a commitment when you come, because that you make it in good faith. That's what you feel at the time. It's what I feel now. And I just pray that, that it will just strengthen each day. Well, if you go around Ireland, you will notice that the... Uh, countryside is absolutely dotted with the, the remnants of old monasteries and the ruins of, of, of uh, Celtic monasticism. And I often wonder, are we going to add to those ruins now when we withdraw from very large buildings? Because yes, we, 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 we find ourselves in large buildings because in the past we have, lar have had large communities and that was part of the, the kind of religious life that, that uh, was there. Now the age structure, as you say, has, has changed. We have very many more elderly as opposed to the scarcity of younger people. Uh, three years ago, the average age uh, for our order as a whole was uh, 52 point something. With regard to the younger people who, are, who find themselves much more in the, in the, in the minority, uh, there's a sense, I suppose, in which we have to look and see how the energy of the, uh, how the apostolic energy of the congregation can be released so that the energy doesn't go on the upkeep of large buildings, on even walking the long distance from one end of the, one end of the building to the other, uh, and that a lifestyle much more in keeping with what people are more comfortable with at the moment, that is in smaller groups where uh, relationships can be more real than in the, in the very large groups. 
uh, that is the sort of setting that is um, more productive, more wholesome, really, for most religious at the moment. Some, of course, would be so socialized into the uh, institutional way of life that um, they find themselves preferring to stay there. And that's all right, too. The year that I entered, 19 people entered. In 1987, one person entered. So that's in a gap of 22 years, 20, 21 years. There's that sort of difference. And I think that's fairly representative of what's happening nationally and, inter well, in the in this side of the world. Um, the implications in terms of the age structure are very serious, in fact, because a, a young woman of 21 who, who enters would see me as, as um, somebody who, who would be physically capable of being her mother. And yet there would be an older age group of sisters who would see me as quite a young person. So the whole perception of age is generating quite a difficulty. Um, we haven't tried to, we, have, we haven't actually um, practically handled it. I don't know how we are going to handle it in a very practical way in the next 10 years, for instance. Because with the older group, it's going to be terribly important that they are not pushed to one side for the sake of, um, you know, just for the sake of, 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 of make, making sure that a smaller, younger group are happy. I would see one of one of our great challenges as a community is affirming and and really giving support to the old, while at the same time giving space to a younger group and a much smaller group to to live a life true to what they're called to but not necessarily of the very same model. Being the youngest person, being the only person in the Samina community is quite difficult because there is a quite an age gap between me and the rest of the sisters. But having said that, they are very supportive and they are very understanding. But I think um, what I miss most is somebody who's at the same stage as myself, somebody who they wouldn't feel the same as I do, but they would be at the same stage as me. And older sisters understand that and they try and help you, but they are not at the same stage as you. So you can only look to them for guidance and for support. But um, I suppose really, in one sense, you have to be, I suppose you have to be quite mature about it as well. And, um, but while I say now that, that I entered on my own, it isn't, I'm not literally living in this community on my own. Or the silence isn't, um, there are silent, there is silence at, um, at certain times during the day, but it isn't a day full of silence at all. And um, in the beginning, I found it difficult because the first retreat I made, I felt that there was so much silence. When I was eating my cornflakes, it was just like an avalanche. <laughs> there was just so much silence. I found it quite difficult. But now I think, um, having spent a year here, I suppose I feel now that, that I appreciate the silence more because I think that we each need, we need space. You know, and I appreciate the silence now. Whereas in the beginning, I didn't really understand it and I had never been used to it. Because, like, there was even nine in my family and there was just noise all the time. I have been lucky enough to see individuals who maybe for years, women who are old women now, 
um, who for years has sort of, uh, it would seem that their personalities were kept down or their individuality was kept down underneath sort of the habit and the regular life and the um, permissions and, and that. Um, but it wasn't really, like the, the characters were never dampened and with more sort of freedom now and more um, opportunity for individuals to express their individuality. You just see these beautiful women emerging and it's just lovely to see these lovely, lovely personalities, these strong women um, who were there all the time and uh, and have been been very gracious about the changes and, and very gracious about and their attitude towards young sisters. To everything turn, turn, turn There is a season turn, turn, turn And a time for every purpose under A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. There clearly are difficulties around the role of women in the church. It is, it is very evident if, if one begins to do a bit of reading and what's happening in other countries. Um, and really, it's a whole look. I think we have to look at it in terms of the culture. Irish culture, and mind you, Irish culture is way behind some of the others. There is a very clear movement towards women coming into their own in a participative and equal way. Um, the church is slower at that. And the church, I think, you know, moves have to be made. Now, how they will be made, I am not too clear. But I think it is basically, it is around participation and it is around respect. Now, the changing of structures to facilitate that is, is a difficult question. But I don't think that um, the kind of alienating, for me, alienating myself from the present structures is not the way forward for me. I never had an interest in being ordained or indeed I must confess in the ordination of women. Um, so in, in a sense I'm saved some of the pain that some of my fellow religious experience uh, and some of the anger maybe that uh, many uh, women lay and religious experience. Somebody once described to me um, that if I went into any church in Ireland I'd become aware of the fact that the church was a church uh, of women run by men. And it's perhaps not untrue if one measures church by practice and involvement in, in um, you know, the caring services and so on. Sometimes I feel very angry about it. I feel put down. I feel ignored. Um, I feel, you know, that in some ways we're regarded as second class or that we were regarded as the, the servants. And um, as I said, that, that doesn't give me a pleasant feeling. It, it makes me quite angry sometimes. But I also feel, and maybe it's because of the people I live with and the people, um, some of the people that I know now, I also experience a great hope because I, we, 
the, there is a really strong sort of um, search and um, for um, appropriate ways to um, to assert ourselves and to uh, to celebrate to find our own ways, for example, in relation to liturgy. Um, that we're, we're not trying to, uh, to fight for women's priesthood because I don't think any of us would, or I wouldn't anyway, want to be a priest in the, uh, the church as it is structured now in that hierarchical. I wouldn't want such to be slotted into that particular place on the hierarchical structure. So we, there's a sense that you kind of leave that aside and you find new ways and we create our own liturgies and um, our own, find our own way of praying and celebrating. The lack of certainty is always painful. And change is tough. Now, some people are more open to change than others. And that's just by nature of the very personalities they have. So I would feel that there are, I would feel that there are religious women in the world today who have been more courageous maybe than most around the question of change. So my tendency would not be to focus so much on those who become entrenched, because there are some. Inevitably, there will be some who are entrenched, and there will be others who will struggle. And there are others in their late 70s who are more open to change than somebody in their mid-30s, in some sort of a crazy way, because of the very beings that they are, and their, their integrity or their wanting to be true to the reality of today. The uh, history of religious orders throughout the ages shows that many hundreds of religious orders have gone out of existence and is greatly written on the, the, the ebb and the flow of religious orders. On the one hand, I suppose one can say, well, most religious orders come into existence for a specific reason. They come into existence out of a need in a context and maybe one could say, well, when they answer that need and fulfill it to whatever extent they can, well, if they go out of existence then, well, maybe that's the way the Lord wants things. I don't know. There's a whole, a whole lot of the, the kind of future that none of us can see there. Um, I suppose the two things that are very certain, apart from death, are that um, Statistics about birth rates and about uh, numbers in any vocation, whether religious or otherwise, uh, are very quirky things. You cannot define them. You cannot say that's the way they're going to be. Uh, we can say, however, that in 10 years' time, we'll have X people in their 30s uh, when I'll be in my 50s. Um, and that has significance for our uh, apostolates. And probably as women religious, we tend to think first of the, the apostolates, the houses, if you like, the works, before we think of ourselves. I'm not saying that that's a, a sign of sanctity or anything. It's simply the way we are. And I think it's right that we're that way, because that's why we came into existence. We came into existence as apostolic congregations, particularly those of us in the, in the 19th century Irish foundations. We came into existence for particular needs, to serve particular needs. So it's inevitable that our culture, our tradition is we think about those needs first. And um, I suppose the, the, what we're having to face now, and we're not too good at facing it and too good at, at doing it, is to, to see how can we leave the really good works, the really needed works, how can we leave them running effectively with under lay care and responsibility.
I don't see religious life as we have known it in the past being the religious life of the future. Um, like I, I don't think that um, I think that most young women, when they look to religious life or think about it, they they think of the nun in the big convent um, or the the person whose whose sort of freedom and individu individuality may be taken from them, and and they don't want to do that. Or they don't want that to happen to them. I think uh, many young people who want uh, there are many young people who want to are very conscious of, say, the inequalities in society, um, in society at home and society uh, abroad in, say, third world countries, and do really want to be part of the movement to change that and to do something about bringing about changes in that. And, and I think there are people who are willing to make sacrifices and willing to make a commitment to, to make that happen. But there are a lot more opportunities for people to do that now than there were years ago, when the, really the only opportunity a person had to, to be involved in that was to become a priest or a nun or a, or a brother and to enter religious life. Um, and, and when you look at the different movements of the groups of young people who are maybe living a, a form of community life, a Christian community life, where they do share their resources and they do share their um, they they share a vision as well and are searching and maybe they're not making lifelong commitments to it but i think they are making commitments in by the way that they live and the choices that they make and and that's where i see uh, the future moving and religious life as we have known it will be will be something for a fewer i mean it'll be another um way of living another way of life um Possibly, I, like I, the people who will make lifelong commitments will be people who will be older, who won't be like the 19, 20, 21 year olds, but maybe people who, who will make a more uh, mature commitment to something forever. And, uh, and maybe they're the people who will, who will enter religious life. I really don't know. But it's not something that worries me. I, um, I haven't. <laughs> yet got to the stage of wondering what's going to happen to me in my old age because I mean the world has just changed so much since I entered and, um, and religious life has changed so much that like it's going to continue changing very rapidly so I don't know what the next 20 years is going to bring. The quality of community doesn't depend on age and numbers that's really what, what I feel although at the same time it is a reality that there are there are quite um, a lot of older sisters and not so many young people coming in and that is a reality that has to be faced but at the same time I would feel that perhaps it's more important to have a body of people who want to be here and who want to be committed rather than we we'll say hundreds of people here as it was in the past. I feel very strong about, like, this is 1988, it's a different era, it's a different time, we have to we have to work and live in the time that we are now in. And it's hard to change, but I think that um, it's very important for us as religious to change with the times.
You have been listening to Sisters Dorothy McCluskey of the St. Louis Order, Carmel Malloy of the Little Sisters of the Assumption, Eileen Doyle of the Irish Sisters of Charity, and Sisters Agnes McKenna, Catherine Prendergast and Tina Yates of the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul. My special thanks to them and also to Sister Louise Callaghan, who acted as advisor for the programme. 